Welcome everybody to the Stoke It Up podcast, a podcast encouraging you and your journey with God. I'm Alan Stoddard and I am here today with Dr. Scott Mays. Scott is the senior pastor at Cross Church in North Richland Hills, Texas. Scott came to know Jesus Christ when he was a young man and this experience changed his life. During his college years at the University of Kentucky, God called him to lead churches. And after graduation from Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, yes, go Southwestern. He, <laughs> he has had the privilege of pastoring churches in Arkansas, Texas, for more than 20 years of pastoral experience. His most recent degree was completed in 2006 with a focus on spiritual awakenings. His wife's name is Tracy. They've been married for more than 25 years. He has three children, Miles. How do I say this, Scott McCall? McCall, and she's McCall. getting married. She gets married next week. The, the week oh. of this podcast, she's getting married. Wow, praise the Lord, and yeah. I'm, I'm sorry for that. <laughs> <laughs> Amen, and then you have another son named Matthew. Well, Scott, welcome to the Stoke It Up podcast, brother. Thank you for coming on. Alan, thanks for inviting me. Uh, interesting fun fact for those of you listening, uh, Scott is my professor right now. He and O.S. Hawkins are a, my professor at Southwestern. I'm auditing a class on evangelistic preaching. That has been amazing. Uh, last week, we, uh, well, week from Monday, Labor Day, we had R.T. Kendall in the room. That's a whole separate conversation. It was unreal amazing. You talk about revival. I sat in that class and I had revival. Uh, Scott, it was unreal, Amen. man. Amen. Fantastic. I'm glad to hear that. So, so Scott, you studied with Dr. Fish. Tell us your relationship with Dr. Roy Fish. We both did. And I, we we're connected. We got to know one another through Dr. Fish, but you know, Dr. Fish's network is, is, it's not a small tree. It's a big tree. So I come to Southwestern in 95. I take a evangelism class from him and he had such a warm personality, you know this, Alan, that um, I still have the cassette tapes recorded of that that class. Now, I think I may only recorded one class in my life, and that was it. So from that point, I took everything he he taught. I had no idea that there was a thing called spiritual awakenings. It might as well have been a Martian on the moon. I had no idea. So I take it just because of him and the way he tells the stories and sets things up. Were, were magnificent. So both masters and doctorate, my favorite course was spiritual awakenings. And he would always set it up by, you know, this is what the conditions were before. And then this is what God began to do. And so that that's a little bit my relationship. Dr. Fish wanted to grade for him. Uh, the one thing I wish I'd had done is kept the voicemails. He would call me every so often, leave a voicemail. And I wish I'd kept some of those. Oh, yeah. Now you took his course, Spiritual Awakenings? Yeah, both master's and doctorate. And uh, master's, wow. he would lecture. Doctorate, uh, the format was we were to bring, we were to write a paper and we were to present. And then, of course, he would evaluate and critique. And he would, uh, of course, assign everybody our various pieces. But the lectures back in the master's, that would be 97-ish, were just wonderful. And just tons of, tons of, tons of people took those. And there's a six-part video that he did in 2010-11, Southwestern has, that gives you a flavor of it. Um, weird thing, Patterson is there, Dr. Patterson, and his dog barks 
in one of them. So when you hear a dog bark, you won't see it on the video, but you'll hear it. Weird thing. But you will get to hear the flavor of Dr. Fish walking through those awakenings. Keep in mind that he's doing that at 80. And so he lacked the verb and the energy that he had when I saw him in the 60s, when he was in his 60s. I don't know when you got to take him. Yeah, I took him in uh, 96. Okay. And yeah, I did not get to take that spiritual awakenings class. It is one of the regrets of my life. And that's why I've hit you up before you sent me some uh, materials that you had from Dr. Fish. And of course, I've done some other things with Mike Napier, who is in New Mexico. And we want to have a conversation about spiritual awakenings because um, you can feel it in the church air that we are in need of revival in the church and spiritual awakening in our nation for sure. Uh, I've been teaching a, a class for the last couple of weeks at Granbury Baptist down here in Granbury on spiritual awakenings and revival and prayer. And I can just feel it. People are ready to be led toward a revivalistic atmosphere. So tell us about revival, Scott, and tell us about the first great awakening and maybe some of the parallels that, that could lead us into the uh, days ahead as we see the end times clouds starting to form up for sure. Yeah. So when you had that class going on, our church, the reason I wasn't there Monday for the class, we had a Bible conference focused on spiritual awakening. So the word revival, the first time we see it in English is by Cotton Mather. And of course it's in Psalm 80, Psalm chapter 85 and uh, people listening to this, if you want to kind of get the etymology of uh, the word study, I should say, of uh, of the words for awakening. You can go to Firefall by Malcolm McDowell uh, and Alvin Reed. Malcolm's going to have an, a new version of Firefall coming out here shortly. But as you move to the first great awakening, uh, you've got multiple little campfires of revival happening in the colonies. Remember, America is not a America till 1776. So we're looking at 1720-ish. And um, you've got the Dunkers and Trunkers, which is sort of an odd group. They're experiencing an awakening. Prior to that, you've got Solomon Stoddard, the maternal grandfather of Edwards. Five seasons or five showers of awakening in his life. He's known for the halfway covenant. We won't get into that. And then you've got this uh, curious fellow named Frelinghausen, whom Fish introduced me to. And Theodore Frelinghausen, whom I did my dissertation on, he comes and he sees what really is more Dutch traditionalism wrapped up in a church. I think that's what he would say. And Frelinghausen is a John the Baptist. He just comes in with two six shooters, you know, two Bibles on his hip, and he's just firing. He gets to a New York pastor, and the pastor in New York doesn't like him because Freelinghausen free sort of freelances prayers. They weren't liturgical. And then Freelinghausen gets to this guy's house and he's got a full-length mirror. And Freelinghausen's aghast at the vanity of anybody having a full-length mirror. Well, then he goes on the other side of the river in New Jersey, pastors four churches at once. Uh, some of them are still in existence today. And he begins to teach awakening, but he does it in a way that is shocking. He will call call the people when they're coming forward, whores and whoremongers coming to the Lord's table. So he minces no words and he fences the table. Uh, he begins to look for evidence of conversion. And, and I might say to our listeners, 
if there's an error that Frenninghausen makes, he's overconfident that he can determine the eternal destiny of a human. When later Frelinghausen will say, I'm not so sure that I was that capable. And yet we want to congratulate this guy because he does take take his role seriously, take the church seriously, want to see reform and revival. So lots of arguments break out. Lawyers are coming into all this, you know, the, the 18th century of that. But he begins to see some conversion. So there's another campfire. Of course, the big campfire is Whitfield. Wherever he goes is, is just almost awakening. And the Nathan Cole story from, I think it's 1741, Middleton, uh, is it Connecticut? It, the listeners need to go find the, 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 that story. He's a farmer that just wears his horse out to go hear Whitfield. Uh, he, Whitfield's oratorical abilities, he grew up in an inn in Gloucester, England. He, he is, he's otherworldly. Another tidbit there, and I bet you taught this uh, just this past week, Benjamin Franklin, who will never convert to Christianity, he has this super Calvinistic sister. Some blame his lack of Christianity on that. I'm not here to do that, just to kind of, I'm just the reporter, just the messenger. Franklin <laughs> loves Whitfield because he publishes Whitfield's books, but he shows up and he knows, Franklin does in time, that you don't bring money because Whitfield's such a good speaker that he'll take the money out of your pocket and he wants the money for the orphanage in, in, the, in the Georgia area. And there's a story, uh, two stories in The Awakening that are really fascinating. Franklin paces off how many people can hear Whitfield. Remember, this is 1740s, 1730s, no microphones. Uh, 25,000 people is the estimate that Franklin has, a non-Christian that that Whitfield can preach to. The second piece, back to the offering, Franklin learns not to bring money, but then there's this incident in his autobiography where he turns to his his person in the listing of Whitfield in open air meetings and says, Can I can I borrow some change to put in there? So Whitfield must have been <laughs> otherworldly. The other piece of this, just two more pieces I'm just quickly trying to pull together, is Edwards. If if students of this awakening want to go learn about it. You'll learn more about the, the, the New England colonies part of it and Edwards because that's where the money is. And where the money is, is education and writing. And Edwards is a fascinating study. His, his sermons are complicated. They are full of great doctrine. He is to be commended and wonderful in so many ways. Uh, yet he will go on to be fired by some of the people who will sign the constitution. Um, he had two showers of awakening. God did amazing things. He did make some mistakes. There's a incident where he tells people quit reclining in the pews when he's preaching. So they're literally laying down, which gives me tremendous encouragement when I see people, when I preach on Sunday. So <laughs> Edwards is tremendous. And of course, there's this incident where Edwards comes, seems to Whitfield comes to Edwards and, and those two forces are combined. So as we kind of wrap this up, all the campfires, the the organizer of that is, is Whitfield. He is the one that kind of brings all that together and coalesces it. And I'd be amiss, and if Roy Fish were here, he would he would tell me I've waited too long to talk about the South and Schubel Stearns and the great awakening among our Baptists and our Methodist friends that will lead into the second great awakening. So lots of good. 
the first great awakening, Alan, is by many accounts the most theologically pristine and the least controversial of the of the awakenings. Why do you think it was the least controversial? Well, it was controversial at the time. You didn't have as many break-off fanatics, but you did have some. So let's go back to Edwards for just a second. Students would do well to read Edwards on awakening. He is the thinker. He is the one for us pastors to go to. Oh, look here. And there's a few, there's a few pieces out there. If you're struggling with Edwards like I have, you can go get Sam Storms. And I think he calls his book called Signs of the Spirit. I'd have to check that to make sure I, I get the right title. But it's sort of a cliff notes of some of Edwards' writing. And here's essentially what you have. You've got the pro-revival, the anti-revival. And Edwards is in the middle of it, and he sees he's pro-revival, so he's going to argue against Charles Chauncey, who's the Congregationalist pastor out of Boston. Chauncey's nickname is the Old Brick, and if you look up and down at Chauncey's you know drawings of what his face looks like, it's a his nickname's a good nickname. He kind of looks like a brick. He looks pretty negative. Chauncey will go on and become Unitarian, so he'll leave the faith. So he's the anti-revival. Of course, you have Whitfield, Frillinghausen. You've got the Tenets. I didn't mention them, among others. They're pro-revival. But Edwards is in the middle and saying, this is a good piece. That's not a good piece. And But don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. And, and let me give you a, a piece here that is sort of fanatical and controversial. There's an itinerant evangelist named James Davenport around this time. So the two itinerants, the two moving uh, preachers are Whitfield and at Davenport. And Davenport, um, he gets into this bonfire and he's burning books. And for whatever reason, he decides to pull off his pants and burn his pants in the bonfire. Well, there was a woman there who had the good sense to grab his pants, charred, singed, and give them back to Davenport and say, here, put these things back on. So you can see that the revival could easily get into excess, that emotionalism unchecked could could really challenge and do some things that were hurtful and harmful so edwards again is our he's our thinker pro revival and and points out the good while saying leave leave the bad alone amen that book i think is signs of the spirit Yes, by Sam Storms. I'll put a link to that for our listeners in the show notes. Uh, no problem with that. Uh, Scott, when you think about revival and awakening, where do you see where we are today in our culture? What is, I had a lady ask me last night, she said, can revival be planned? <laughs> mm. And I I gave an answer and I think people are hungry. When we think about revival and just those movements of God, uh, Second Great Awakening, Layman's Prayer Revival, and I want to ask you about Azusa in a minute, but where do you see we are today with revival? Well, I'm hearing a few stories. I'm hearing some good things out of uh, this past week. I've heard some good things about some of the Baptist Student Union in Waco. I've not verified that. I've not been there, but you know, good things about that. Uh, the college students over the past couple decades at Texas A&M with Breakaway has been amazing. So there's been some remarkably good things. 
Um, another great piece of this is Tim Keller in Manhattan. And of course, Tim just recently passed away, but the Lord has hand upon that church. And it's interesting in the first to second full year of Keller's Redeemer's Church, he preaches a series of four to five messages on revival. And he gives some great working definitions. He'll say in the message that revival is God hitting the fast forward button. It's when sleepy Christians wake up. It's when nominal Christians convert. And it's when, you know, uh, I would add deacons and pastors that sometimes get converted. And again, that's Tim Keller. You can go back and all his sermons, I think, are in gospel life. I, I may be wrong on that. If you're a Logos guy, you can you can purchase his sermons. And those are those are tremendous. So you're seeing some pieces of this. I just had John Avant from Life Action, and Life Action's all about awakening. He's telling me great things are happening overseas, especially Iran. I've had him in our church here a couple of times, and, and he'll always mention Iran and the good things that the Lord is doing. And there's estimates there of some 5 million Christians. So we know Christianity is growing. It's growing globally. Here in the West, we're becoming more secular, and there's, a, there's an antagonism. And to your point, what you're talking about last night with Granberry, every time fish, and I said this a second ago, and I just want to come back to it. Every time fish would set up when he began the first Great Awakening, the second Great Awakening, the layman's prayer revival of 1857, 1858, he would always do the before and then the after. And I keep thinking that we're living in a wonderful before for the after. You know, we're debating gender. Um how many genders? I mean, who would have thought this? We're living in a great before. I'm 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 with you. I'm on the welcome committee for it. To your friend's question last night, Finney would have an answer, and I'm not a Finney guy on this. I, I think it's God sends it. It's up to him. Now we can prepare for it and we can get into some of that in just a minute, but uh, I think it's totally up to when God does it. And it's up to his timetable. So uh, life action, I'm going to put that in the show notes. Also, everybody, if you haven't been exposed to life action, you absolutely need it. Um, I've been to a couple of their events. They're amazing. A matter of fact, that that ministry set the course of much of my ministry these days. Um, so let's move into that. You guys just did a season where you did some stuff on awakening at the church, right? Yeah, we did. We uh, this is this is a big deal for me. And Malcolm McDowell, who's another major professor at Southwestern, I Mal took Doctor McDowell. Love him. I need to yeah. give him a phone call. Yeah, I've got his yeah phone give us give us the why of what why why are you doing this? Why why the focus in the local church on these things? So Malcolm would tell his story. Back in Memphis, he was pastoring a church, and he was really depressed. This would be the early seventies, so about the time I came into existence. And um, God began to move in that church. And it was part of the Jesus movement. So our Calvary Chapel friends, thank you. For, you know, thank you for that. And God swept across uh, the southern part of our, of our nation. And he said to me, just sort of, I don't know if he really remembers saying it. He said, Scott, he just has a way about himself. Scott, whenever you have an opportunity to be in an awakening, take advantage of it. You know, you, you won't want to miss it. And so with that, I, those are just words that sort of the balloon, you know, the words hang out there for a long time. And I've, I've never seen this. I, I've, I've never seen it. I've seen it 
two little snippets of it, one at Southwestern in 95, and then one in a church I pastored that I thought good things were going to happen when I was in the, the panhandle of Texas, but it was just short-lived. So I I feel that the awakening is that it's not going to be a panacea for all of our problems. There's going to be problems after an awakening comes and goes, but there's so much good that can happen and you'll see conversions. You could see a greater sensitivity to how we treat the poor, the marginalized, um, how we treat those who are coming across our border. We may have differing opinions on what we think should happen at the border, but they're here now and we've got to minister to them. An awakening can can do all kinds of things. You'll see in, 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 in the past that the first great awakening likely, historians say, tampered down the fervor and the vehement in comparison to the French Revolution. When you take the American Revolution, which short, shortly followed the first great awakening, why were we not guillotining people? Well, people say to the religious consciousness of the first great awakening. Uh, and again, it doesn't solve everything. You and I were talking about this a few minutes ago. Your 1857-1858 revival did not stop the Civil War and did not stop slavery. Uh, so it, it's not going to be everything. But I want an awakening because I, I want it for the purpose of evangelism. I want our nation to experience the movement of God again. I want that for my children. I, I want to see so many you know great conversions, people we're praying for to repent. And I think a, a, a genuine awakening is a movement of the Holy Spirit. And he just does more in that season for whatever reason that he does in his normal operations. Amen to that. You know, we, uh, after life action, and then I took Dan Crawford, yeah. um, Roy Fish, Malcolm McDowell, and revivalistic man i'm so glad i went to southwestern when i did my gosh that, yeah. that i know what guys like us always say stuff like that but i'm like wow it's amazing and now matt queen anyway uh all of that to prepare um to be uh, i told the lady last night i said what i would do um in the ministry and pastoring is i would set aside at least one week a year where we're gonna have a revival it's it's not necessarily revival meetings of the old nature where we would invite our lost friends. We're really, if you want to invite somebody, go for it. But this would be more like life action. This is where, you know, I'd started doing life action things that style in the church once a year to say, we're going to bring in a couple of people and we're going to stop, stop everything, stop your life, stop ministries in the church, please. And then, you know, people will go, we can't stop doing ministry in the church. Listen, we're going to pause for a minute and we're going to spend 30 days in prayer. We're going to get prepped up. We're going to do some things with other churches and at least be in a position to say we have a revival. I almost I don't know if this is the right phrase. You correct it. Revivalistic culture to where we're not sitting back at ease in Zion so much. Yeah. You know, and, and to your point. A revival is needed if you're a Christian more than about a few minutes or, or or three months. I mean, when the fire and the passion for the Lord die down, then you need a personal revival. And of course, the, the awakenings we're talking about, and I tend to use the word awakening because I'm in the South, the word revival connotates the sawdust trail and the tents yeah. and all that, more of an evangelistic appeal, which praise the Lord, we need that again. But 
I'm not aiming for that here. I'm aiming exactly you. Let's Lord get this church, get us disciples, get us passion again. So if you're a Christian more than about, you know, three months, I don't know what season of life when our listeners and you and I, we tend to have our love for the Lord abate, but in awakening, it's a, it's a stoking of the personal fires for Christ and worship and a longing and leaning for the Lord. It's a hunger for the Lord. So those are the things that we're looking for. And when that's electric in, in a congregation, when that's electric, like the Jesus movement in the 70s or the one of the, the 1900s, Azusa Street, and that just happens all over the place, then great things begin to happen among our non-Christians and evangelism becomes easier. Well, let me let me ask you about the Azusa Street revival, and I don't know how uh, how much of an expert or not expert you are with that, but you definitely got more history with revival than I do. I've been examining the Azusa Street revival because sometimes it doesn't get the same press that the first, second Great Awakening, the Jesus Movement, the Layman's Prayer revival. And for those of you that may not know, the Azusa Street Revival was a series of revival meetings that took place in Los Angeles, California, led by William Seymour. He was an African-American preacher, and it began on April 9th, 1906, and Wikipedia here says that it roughly went to 1915. Um, of course, the Bonnie Bray Street prayer meetings and revival uh, Scott, let's use this as a way to extend the conversation. Tell us about the Azusa Street beyond that. It has some it 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 has some legitimacy to it, but it it has some weird things that come along with it. And I've wondered why it doesn't get the same press that other revivals might get. Yeah, and I think it's for the very thing you just mentioned, some of the the oddities of it. And and, and that it's not alone. The second great awakening gets some of that as well too and so when you're, you're looking at azusa and second great awakening um and we'll take you back to second second great awakening you've got um timothy dwight at yale um you've got um i think making sure i get my history right here because i've not read this in some time you got finney and you've got also nettleton um but then you've got cane ridge out of kentucky which is where i grew up and there's incidents there where they're barking like dogs, all four. So I recently was listening to a podcast with Al Moeller and Moeller of Southern Seminary was talking about dispensationalism and talking about the, the, the oddities, that's not the word he used, out of the Second Great Awakening. And you have the same thing, I think, within Azusa Street. Azusa, and I could be corrected here, with, I'm not a historical theology guy, I think it popularizes the baptism of the Spirit. Now, the listeners have to decide what they where they are theologically. Our charismatic friends, I'm really not sure about Calvary Chapel. You could teach me here. They would teach a second baptism. And Pentecostals would teach a second baptism of the Spirit as evidenced by tongues. Yeah. Charismatics in large would not say it has to be evidenced by tongues, but there'll be evidence of a second baptism. It's Stott in his book, Baptism in Fullness, that speaks of the word this is where I learned it. There's seven times baptism of the Spirit is used in the Greek in the New Testament. And none of those have to do with a second work of the Spirit. So I would 
I would not be a charismatic. I would say we should seek more of the spirit and our friends across the aisle, charismatics and Pentecostals. I want to reach across the aisle and say, yes, give us more of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we all need that. That's the that's the challenge today. But I would say it's the filling of the spirit, not a baptism of the spirit. Uh, I've come to faith in Jesus and he sealed me. And I can lose the filling of the spirit as evidence in Ephesians uh, teaches us to, to pray for the filling of the spirit. So Azusa Street, it it popularizes this with Charles Parham. And you mentioned some of the other names. And today, by the grace of God, Charismatics and Assembly of God is the only denomination in America that continues to uh, grow or, or at least stay uh, that plateau. Every other denomination has gone by the wayside, including my own as a Southern Baptist. So there's work that the Lord has done there. And there's work that I think continues around the globe. And we're grateful to God for it. But it does create some um, some issues. And there's other things such as healings. You got that with the Second Great Awakening. You got that with the Zusa Street as well. And I don't know what our, our listeners are, but you know, I I pray for healing in hospitals all the time. Some of the I've studied this out. So it's not the healings that we would have a problem with. It's the ones that are a little bit uh like they say that they prayed and a man's arm grew. Uh, it's those kind of things that I wouldn't even, you know, part of me doesn't want to deny that. I want to go, you know what, if you say that happened, praise God. Mm -hmm. But uh, it it is, you don't see that. And uh, I'm not sure you see that in the New Testament even. Um, regardless, uh, it's often the tone that comes with these things out of the Pentecostal movement that becomes works-based righteousness attached to grace somehow. And it becomes a little complicated in the way we interact with our Pentecostal brothers and sisters. I can tell you, um, being a uh, Southern Baptist guy that has become Calvary Chapel, I'm, I'm connected to the Calvary Global Network, but uh, the Calvary Chapel guys are nowhere near Pentecostal with uh, the subsequent baptism of the Spirit. Uh, back in the day, Chuck Smith, he, what he did, this is crazy. Being an SBC guy, I'm like, okay, I want to know, like, is this true? So I asked some of the big name Calvary guys. I said, tell me about this thing of the subsequent baptism of the spirit. Because I said, I'm coming out of the Baptist camp and I've got a reformed position on that. I, and what I mean by reformed, everybody, is not Calvinism, but just a traditional when you're born again First uh, Corinthians 12, 13, I think it is, or is it 18? It says, by one spirit, we're baptized into one body. And uh, I get where the book of Acts talks about a subsequent baptism of the spirit a couple of times. So I'm not trying to do away with that. However, when I asked those guys, very fascinating, Scott, they didn't have a clear, strong, confident answer. Uh, the Calvary movement, here's what Chuck Smith said. Chuck Smith said, baptism of the spirit, can happen subsequently, but also simultaneously with conversion. I read that when I first became a Calvary guy, and I went, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. I mean, nobody puts those two things into one statement. You're either or. And I would say for most Calvary Chapel guys these days, they're really not focusing on it the way they used to. They just want people to walk in the spirit. 
Yeah. They don't make it a legalistic thing at all. Uh, a lot of them are open to this could be semantical about baptism and filling. Um, and these are things, uh, everybody, that come with revival. These are things that the work of the Spirit is going to look very different, and it doesn't have to be freaky. Um, Calvary chapels actually would pretty pretty much come against the Pentecostal view of of it because it becomes legalistic with evidence of speaking in tongues. They would never say that has to be an evidence, and if you don't do that, you're not born again. They would. That's it's very off. It's more like spirit filled Baptists for the most part. Yeah. And I, I love that. And I, from what I know of Calvary Chapel guys, I, I would get along with them. They're exposition oh, yeah. preaching verse by verse, Genesis to Revelation, start back over again. That's that's awesome. That creates a whole lot of that that damps down a whole lot of theological stupidity. Um, your point about you know Pentecostalism, the old Pentecostalism as evidence by you know by tongues, why not, you know, if we're gonna say baptism of the spirit. Why not evidenced by the fruit of the spirit? Why not be evidenced by generosity and love? Yeah. And, and I'm going to be more gracious and kind or uh, be less ra racist and bigot. So there's all kinds of things there. The spirit of God shows up and he's going to, he's going to change, change our lives. And we, we all in America, Baptist, Calvary Chapel, Pentecostals, Charismatics, uh, Evangelical Catholics who know the Lord, Methodists who know the Lord, let's all pray that we get more of the Holy Spirit and have him do some of the great things that we need to do. And that goes back to, to uh, 1857, 1858. They were gathering and praying. It was not a preaching revival. And there's a tell, story. Tell us about that, Scott. Before, yeah, as, as, just, before, we, before we end the podcast, let's talk about the 1857 revival. This is a way to pick your brain and hear your heart on it. Tell us, tell us that for people that don't know the story and maybe how that could relate to where uh, we need churches to go in the future. So there's this story, the Mill of the Awakening. It's not the start of it. The start is uh, Fulton Street out of New York City's famous story. But the story I want to tell is Kalamazoo, Michigan. And you have these prayer meetings popping up everywhere. And it would just, Americans would not have a clue how many thousands of people were showing up to pray. There was very little preaching. There wasn't that much singing. It was praying. And so they stand up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and they read, a wife asked for prayer for an unconverted husband. And one man after another stands up and says, that's my wife. That's my wife. So here you have unconverted men showing at a prayer meeting, standing up. Wow. Saying, <laughs> I need to be saved. And it just, it's amazing. That one was much cleaner theologically there wasn't you know the excesses that i know about and you and i were talking before the podcast if our if our folks want to our listeners your listeners want to j edwin Orr, his books are hard to get a hold of but he is the definitive historian on most of the awakenings and he does something that you and i we're doing what most white americans do we do all american revivals um, we don't pay attention to what goes on in Asia. We're not paying attention to what goes on in Africa. Orr doesn't do that. And let, let me finish with this little piece of story. Orr is in World War II, and he's scared he's going to lose his life. And even as a young man, he knows about this 1857-1858 revival, but it's not being told. It's just been neglected. And he gets a sense that God tells him, your life will be saved. You'll make it through the war so that you can tell the story of this. 
and he goes on. He's he is the guy that, that he sees awakening in that period of time all over the globe. So Jalen Orr is, is a he's not the most interesting to read, but he is definitive, historically accurate, and he's he's a great person if you can get him to the library. That's awesome. We will uh, put a link in the show notes for that. Uh, Scott, I want to thank you for just taking the time to to come on and talk. We could keep going and going and going and going and going. Revival is such a great need. If you were going to encourage pastors, leaders, and churches uh, today and just seeking the Lord and maybe how do you stay fresh and keeping yourself personally revived, would you give us uh, just an encouragement as we end the podcast like that? Well, I'm going to close with a, a statement that Richard Ross said at our Bible conference. Uh, Richard Ross is professor of student ministry at Southwestern. He was the inventor of a thing called True Love Waits, and he had great content. And here's what he said. When revival comes, the Ruach, the, the Spirit of God, like we've got to set our sails for it. Now, lots and lots of us have said that. But then he said in his message, that what if you're a drunk sailor back in the first century and the only way that the boat's gonna go anywhere is because wind catches it. But you're so drunk from the night before that you know if you and I are two drunk sailors and I look over and say, Alan, should we get up and set the sails today? You think the wind's gonna come? And it said, nah, let's just sleep it off. And then he says, what if, what if revival, what if awakening comes to where I am in North Texas? where you are what if what if awakening comes to your area and you miss it what if you fail to put the sails up what if you fail to be in god's word and fasting and praying and seeking the lord and awakening shows up because it's not going to affect everybody it's going to polarize people in churches the old lights new lights that was in the the awakenings the, the, the ones that were for it against it so i love his metaphor about the drunk sailors i want to be vigilant when it comes I want to be a part of whatever the Spirit of God's doing, and I want my sales up. Wow, that is so good. Well, Scott, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Of course, I'll see you in class on Monday, and uh, that has been fascinating. That's a whole nother conversation. But if you're listening today, uh, we want to encourage you to reach out to us if we can do anything to serve you in your church and in your ministry. Um, check out the show notes for all the links that I mentioned. If you find this content valuable, share it around. We would love to uh, just help people stoke up their ministry. Paul said, rekindle the gift of God that is in you. Sometimes you just got to fan the flame kind of thing and raise the sails, as Scott just said. Thank you for tuning in. We love you guys, and we will see you on the next episode of the Stoke It Up podcast.